Welcome back to Play to Find Out. My name, as ever, is Eamon Voidlight on the Dungeon World Discord, and I'm joined by... Arthur, Art Projects on the Dungeon World Discord. Happy to be here, Eamon. Arthur, I'm so excited to be back on mic, recording with you, talking about Dungeon World. What a treat, what a treat. I'm excited too. And today we've got a pretty cool show lined up for you. We're going to be talking about all kinds of games, big and small. But first, Eamon, I understand you have a highlight you'd like to share. Yeah, so I have something going on which doesn't get to happen all the time, which is a new campaign starting up. Um, and I hope this is, this is a summer full of new campaigns. But uh, for right now, I've got a new PvP starting up uh, in the Discord. Now you say um, PvP. What do you mean by that? So PvP is what us hipster kids call... Play by post. Play Play, by post. Yeah, so it's basically a way of uh, role-playing over text. Um, Discord is especially well-suited to this, but people do it sometimes on forums or on shared Google Drive documents. And the way it works is basically the GM is going to be posting text every once in a while, uh, showing the situation at hand, and the players will respond to their own written fiction. And when a role is called for, that role will either be made with physical dice at home, and then you'll communicate the result of that, or in line with some sort of dice rolling utility or bot, uh, especially in the case of Discord, which is the easiest way to do it, that people are typing back and forth, and then you can simply type in slash R, like 2D6, or exclamation point, you know, whatever the syntax for your specific dice bot is, and it rolls the dice right there for you. Real good. Um, the advantages of this are that games can happen in sort of a trickle fashion instead of a sit-down session asynchronously. So someone can post something, And then over the course of the day, whenever the other players see it, they can post something. And typically like a couple posts a day or or, or sometimes less is the norm. Um, And this is really advantageous for people who want to role play um, kind of all the time. And and if they don't have time to set aside a big chunk of time. And they also are maybe less willing to role play in another stopgap fashion like over video chat which is nice. how people typically would if they were remote. Cool. So tell me about this game that you're starting up. What's so, so special about it? This game, I wanted to try out a theory that I might eventually use for an in-person campaign. Um, but the theory is basically a greatest hits of dungeons. And the narrative um, sort of framework that it's operating in is that we have a group of PCs that have founded some sort of adventuring company. And they have been adventuring for fame and profit for some time. And we're picking up on them towards the... Uh, later days in their career. So all the PCs are starting off around level 5, um, which is uh, pretty far in Dungeon World. It's only, it's about halfway. That would be equivalent of like level 10 or so in, um, in D&D. And they are the surviving members of this company. So the fact that they've survived this long, they were some of the founding members, and the fact that they've survived this long means they've seen quite a few dungeons. They've been there, done that, in most of the adventuring world. Um, you've ever heard of that Big Bad Lich? Yeah, they were probably the ones who killed him. You know, they were the ones who first explored the ancient depths of Kadthanan and all, all, and all sorts of stuff like that. And so this construction allows us to pick up with a group of powerful PCs and kind of uh, get to see the full scope of their playbook, um, which is fun because sometimes you don't always get to do that, especially in PvP campaigns, which sprout up and then die out like pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. Additionally, it allows us to uh, explore some harder content and also to sort of play in reverse. And what I mean by that is we're picking up with PCs who already have history, and so instead of just discovering what their uh, future is together, we're also going to be discovering their past. 
So not all the characters are in typical Dungeon World fashion aren't coming in with big written out backstories, but just like a sketched framework of like what their um, situation is like. And then we'll see how they, that relates to the other PCs in play, which I'm really excited for. That sounds um, fun. Yeah. Cool. And you're so playing in this campaign, actually, Arthur. Uh, wait. Oh, th- we're talking about that campaign, the one that I'm playing in. Indeed. All right. Well, I'm very excited for my paladin, Everett Diaz Dawson, to show up in a highlight sometime in the in the near future. Yeah. So um, I, one of the things about this campaign uh, that I thought was really cool uh, from a meta standpoint is that there are a few dungeons that I've read about but have never had been able to like smoothly fit into a campaign before. Um, like things from... The Tales from the Yawning Portal, for example, which was a collection of famous D&D adventures over the years, and different things from different books. And this gives a perfect narrative construction, because the there's a built-in reason for the PCs to want to go there, which uh, is no one uh, ever has, or no one ever has in Survive. Because they're just chasing down the fame of, like, cracking all of these dungeons. Okay. Awesome. Um... Anything in particular that's happened so far? I know you said it's fairly early on, and I also know because I'm in it that it's fairly early on, but is there anything anything in particular you want to leave uh, as the highlight for for this week? Um, one of the players um, has submitted their character sheet and is basically done with their character concept so far um, that, I've, that I've read up to date, uh, and that player is playing a, um, a sort of alternate ranger, it's it's from like a monster hunter uh, third party playbook, and they've built them out as sort of like a witch hunter, which I thought was really cool because that gets at a lot of the elements of the ranger aesthetic that I like, um, but not uh, not in the way that D and D vanilla does. Like there's no animal companion, but they have a lot of moves about having preparation and setting traps and being able to uh, critically um, harm things that wouldn't otherwise be harmed, like be able to like kill ghosts and stuff like that. Ooh. Cool. Well, that sounds like a pretty cool playbook. I'm excited to see it come up in play. But with that in mind, I think it's time for us to start talking about our adventure workshop for this week. Interesting Monsters. So, now that I'm back in at least some form of GM's chair, um, which was... uh, only happening on and off during during the this past year because I was playing in a long campaign. Um, I'm thinking a lot more about interesting monsters because everyone has different um, tastes and preferences as as a GM. And one of the things I get the most fun out of as a GM is uh, creating creatures that are really fun to have encounters with, uh, and also uh, just the evocative descriptions of like making a, a monster so interesting that like they are like a set piece in and of themselves. Um, and that doesn't mean like fully discarding things like, you know, your, your orcs and your, uh, your kobolds and things like that. Uh, sometimes especially it can mean, uh, taking something old and giving it a new spin. An example I'll give for that is I was reading a blog post recently where, uh, this, this author, and I'll link it. I don't, I don't remember their name off the top of my head, but they were talking about, uh, the Etten? Do you know what an Etten is? Pretend I don't. So Although I also don't. An Etten, uh, it's something that's appeared, I think, in, in the various uh, 
monster manuals over the years uh, in in D and D and other systems. But it's basically just a two headed giant, right? Like there's all kinds of different interpretations of it, but basically the special thing about it is just a giant, but it's got two heads. Um, and they were saying like, let's make it a little more interesting than that, uh, not just like a two headed giant, but like that this is a creature that has the ability to kill people, sever their heads, and then like attach them to itself. Um, and then a lot of interesting stuff came from that because it attaches the heads to itself and the heads are still sentient and it gains their knowledge. But the heads are also sentient and like semi-independent. So like the heads will be like screaming, like help free me, kill me, like different things like that. Um, or they'll be insane from the experience. Um, and if the Etin is uh, unwise or stupid enough to uh, sever the heads of multiple creatures that have a vastly different worldview or alignment than itself, um, if there are enough of them, they could actually rebel and uh, sort of take control of the Etten. Like if their if their combined wills outweigh the will of the main head. Huh. Like if the Etten uh, killed a whole group of thieves and then all the thieves together were like, we're we're gonna control this ship. Then like their wow. eight heads. Yeah. So that's I, that's mm, what I'm talking about. This interesting isn't monsters. this isn't just an interesting monster. This is an interesting character concept. I almost feel like I could see myself playing a thieves guild as one. PC in Etten form. That, hmm, I like it. Yeah, it's pretty rich, um, especially because um, I'll, I won't I won't go into all the examples that the blog post gave, but just take spin, take this interesting directions. I want to bring up some other examples of interesting monsters, but you see what I'm saying? Where Ettens already exist uh, mm-hmm. as an idea, but what's special about them is just that they have two heads, and so they're just a little bit harder to kill. So you got to cut off their head twice, basically. But this is kind of fleshing it out a bit. And also, like, in play, um, like, what it's killed in the past, you have to kind of think of this monster's history when you're making one, right? Like, if this monster has killed a wizard, it can cast spells now, you know? And so it changes it quite a bit. Um, another thing that I was thinking about was um, this famous um, this famous article from Dungeon Magazine that's been referenced a lot um, called Tucker's Kobolds. And this idea was kobolds are, like, a a super low challenge rating monster, you know, or just super low difficulty in general in any system. Uh, they typically appear in groups, but they're described as being very crafty, right? And they make traps and they tunnel and make little rat's nest burrows and things like that. And so there was this person relating their experience of playing D&D um, while in the military with some of his buddies. And one of their, um, the person who was GMing for them was playing these kobolds so viciously that they were a challenge to 20th level PCs um, or to just very high level PCs that they, these kobolds, they were attacking from behind arrow slits. They were setting hallways on fire. They were creating all sorts of traps. They would never be like seen often. Um, and they would shoot and then run behind total cover. So the PCs couldn't bring their abilities to bear. Uh, they would create deadfalls, all kinds of stuff like that. And it just, it made me think a lot about uh, combat as sport versus combat as war, which I'll definitely talk about in a different episode. But just on the on the front of the monsters, taking a monster that would be used as cannon fodder in a traditional campaign, and then making them a set piece. That mm-hmm. these kobolds, why are they dangerous? Not just their hit points, not just their damage die, but something else. Which I think is really, really key to Dungeon World monsters. I think that's a really, really key point. You're right. Um I think a lot of the time as GMs, we should step outside of our of our natural box of it has this many HP, it has these moves, and think about these monsters more in terms of, well, not just the moves that they make, but really the 
the thing that makes them exciting for the players. Every monster has it, you know, and I think the kobold example here is is a prime one. What makes those kobolds interesting is they're using real tactics as a group. What yeah. other um what other monsters do we have? I, I think we see a lot of um at least in my games, a lot of hordes with um you know, vague vague distinct distinguishing characteristics between individual people. Uh, I'm a big fan of the the group of five to six orcs that then when they kill one, another one takes its place. It is it is fun to have a sort of preloaded set of weird characteristics that these orcs have. If you've played uh, any of the Middle Earth Shadow games, Shadow of Mordor, Shadow of War, yeah, the orcs in that have a lot of variance to them. It can be fun to leverage some of that to make your you know, even make your cannon fodder enemies, the people that come up in droves and are driven off easily, uh, have some character to them, a little bit of extra extra style. That highlights a, a specific strategy, which I, in my mind I call the lieutenant strategy, which is you've got a bunch of grunts and then it's punctuated by the occasional special version, right? That's mm-hmm. the, the And uh, Shadow of Mordor does that where most of the orcs you kill in that game they're they're just orcs, but yeah. occasionally there'll be a lieutenant, and they will have some some special name and some special mm-hmm. characteristics and a personality. And um, I have seen this employed directly in a in an example of the campaign I just played in, where we were fighting mostly orcs, where these orcs basically the whole orc race had been taken over by this um, by basically Fenrir and uh, the the Norse mm-hmm. Fenrir, and become this sort of god to them. And so most of the orcs we fought were in these units where they were just a bunch of um, grunts, and we would. Uh, the unit would be treated kind of a, as a single enemy in Dungeon World, kind of like a swarm or a horde, um, where their hit points was representing more of how many of them were left than um, the in, the health of an individual, because uh, we were fighting large numbers. But occasionally there would be these lieutenants, and they were called the rune-marked orcs, because they had like a rune brand in their forehead. And the different runes corresponded to a different like special power. For example, there was one of them that had a rune where they would run up to you and then they would explode. Like they would basically like cast fireball like inside themselves and then they would explode. And, and, and so those ones we would always try to strategically use to make them blow up prematurely to kill other orcs, uh, try not to get them to get close. There were other ones where every time you hit them with a metal weapon, they would do lightning uh, damage to you. Uh, because they, would, they would shock outwards. Uh, there were some that when they died, their body would... Uh, evaporate and they would reform back at their base and so you had to kill them in a special way to make them truly dead uh, and on and on but the, the point is that like th- this is an example of the lieutenant technique that they were punctuating uh, swarms of orcs with these special lieutenants that were in fiction that way because they were receiving special mm-hmm. runes from the, sure. the wolf or whatever. that required a special approach to defeat as well uh, yeah and that's a very video gamey technique. Like For th- sure. this is the most but, often used one. Yeah, games. but it's also totally a lesson that we should learn from video games. And you know, yeah, I think that one. I think that the the set of games that took the Batman Arkham Asylum combat, which I think is Middle Earth and Batman, basically. Oh, those and games do many that. more, honestly. Yeah, uh, they get, that combat yeah. system became pr- extremely popular. But those games have a particular way of doing it, where you've got the grunt enemy. The enemy with the shield, the enemy with the stun baton, the enemy or, you know, the equivalent, the enemy with poison knives. Um, and they get progressively more, they get progressively more complicated to take down. But once you know the trick for any given enemy, they're pretty easy to kill. But having the players discover that trick and not actually having a trick planned out that you tutorialize the way a video game does, but letting the players decide how to take a 
you know, an electrified orc down. That's pretty compelling to me, and it's a good way to to make sure your players are staying engaged in those circumstances and paying attention. Yeah, I'd say this is this is probably um, level two of of like uh, combat combat basics. Like level one is like the press X to kill things, right? Yeah. And if that's what's going on at your table, maybe you're ready to move on to level two, which is the players don't just say I attack it anymore and just roll their damage die. Like this enemy requires something else, you know. Uh, in the lieutenant strategy, maybe there's a defied danger, right, to get close to the enemy before you're able to attack. Like, maybe this enemy's a master swordsman and will parry all of your attacks uh, unless you're able to get inside of its guard, you know, and that might have to be defied danger of some sort. Um, yeah. To move it a little bit beyond that is when the enemies are bringing to bear um, testing other elements of the character beyond just their combat, but, like, their ability to, like, think... Uh, quickly and their ability to socially maneuver and stuff like that um, you could nest special types of enemies that wouldn't be considered traditionally monsters in social situations um, or even in like the parties that we talked about last week um, i'm thinking of an enemy that uh, you can use psychology against right uh, you can even do this with grunt enemies like maybe mm -hmm. maybe there's the possibility that once you do grievous damage to a significant number of these enemies they actually flee um which is a way to leverage, for example, like the messy tag and stuff like that. Is right. That you can actually, uh, your actions are affecting the enemies in, in a human way. And once you start hinting at that, the players will start trying those sorts of things. Like they might set up an elaborate ruse to try to terrify like a group of enemies if they, if they actually think it might work. Cause some, some jams like aren't good at rewarding that type of play. Like even if you come up with this whole thing and you're trying to, uh, convince something, you're like, Oh, this is a monster. You can't parlay with him. He's just, he's just a monster. There's no, there's no talking. Have you ever experienced stuff like that, Arthur? Uh, I've uh, I've been guilty of it, certainly. Although typically in systems where it doesn't want to talk to you is um, sort of a, a core assumption. Although actually, I, I've had issues where it's the other way around. In a game, uh, we're going a little bit off the Dungeon World trail here, but in a game of Tech Noir that I was playing a while ago, Tech Noir as a system doesn't let you do permanent things to your enemies. So for instance, killing somebody... Uh, is basically off limits unless you have a specific resource, a push die. So, you know, it was it was a challenge to have that conversation of no, you can't do the thing that you're describing in fiction because you don't have the resources for it. You flip oh, that around yeah. and it's it ends up not being fun really in in either direction. If there's something a player wants to do but they're not empowered to do it by the system, it sucks. One of the things I like about Dungeon World is that the players are always empowered to do what they want by the system, but the system reacts to it uh, accordingly. Yeah, um, I think Dungeon World, um, there, there's the parlay mechanic, um, which can, I, I definitely think, be used um, on monsters. And considering what this monster would appreciate as leverage and how you can signal that to the character, I think is a really, really cool one. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about pushing uh, beyond just the lieutenant strategy and creating other uh, other things. And I'm especially interested in the context in which we encounter monsters. Sure. Um, I've been reading Vornheim, which I'll talk a little bit more about in the um, in in later segments. But Vornheim, if you've never heard of it, I'll link it. Is uh, a kit, um, a book that that is basically a a kit on creating urban adventures and cities. Um, it pro provides a bunch of tools to like random tables and stuff for cities, but also just shows like how a city can be more than just a medieval town, like how it can be a weird, interesting place 
that's self-consistent, but also like a landmark in and of itself. Um, and they want to provide places for the city to not just be where you go between the adventures, but for the adventure to potentially happen there. Um, and dungeons don't just have to be under cities, but can be like part of them. And so here's what I'm getting at. So they provide an example in this book of a way that you might encounter interesting monsters in a city, which is that there is a zoo in the city, which has, uh, which was created by a wizard some time ago, right? That this was their like prize menagerie or whatever. And the wizard has long since passed or is otherwise indisposed. And this zoo is there full of the animals, which are themselves rare treasures, and also full of other artifacts that uh, people might wish to recover or might stumble into and become trapped in this zoo, which is, I think, the default scenario presented in the book. But once you're in there, um, you're getting to have encounters with all these monsters because they're being like released periodically. I, I won't basically detail the whole adventure, but you encounter really interesting things in there that, first of all, that's the context for you to fight something, you know, fight a beast inside the city. But additionally, it's a context for you to fight something really, really interesting, not just like a couple of thugs roll up on you, but like a triceratops with the head of a flail rolls up on you Whoa. You know, or, or a snail that eats dreams or like a blue tiger that can face through walls. Like these are the different types of things that you would face like in this in this zoo because the con the context allows for it. So what I'm getting at here is more interesting contexts create more interesting monsters. Totally. Like a layer has something interesting in it, right? Mm -hmm. A random field might not. You see what I'm saying right. there? For sure. Although I can imagine a random field being equally viable for something interesting. You know, maybe it's John Barleycorn, the corn spirit that we sing about in the folk songs, has risen up in his body of husks. And now but then you have, you've the turned that field into a layer. You know, it's not just the, the, the monster actually relates to it somehow. Mm -hmm. Like it isn't just a, a, a blank canvas ah, for the I monster to be on. Yeah, like yeah. They're, they're connected by some narrative. Sure. Well, I want to share a couple of my interesting monsters techniques before we move into our next segment. So Absolutely. I'm just going to beeline through these real quick. Um, in particular, in con games, I really like to experiment with new monster styles and new monster designs and try them out, see how they work. A couple of them that I'm particularly proud of is the giant ant hive. I, talked to, I think I talked about it a while ago. Yeah, I um, remember that one. The idea in the giant ant hive is that the players are fighting mindless ant drones. The drones themselves, or not drones, uh, workers. The workers themselves are pretty much, are pretty easy to kill, but there are always more of them. And frequently, in order to deal with them, you have to cut off where they're coming from or where they're going. Now, oh, I like that. workers aren't the only things that they're, fight that they're fighting their way through, though, because as workers die, their bodies are taken away by, the dr by other smaller worker ants to be uh, repurposed, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, but then on top of that, you have um, you have the constant threat of the hive wanting to do other things with the players than just kill them. Pull them deeper in, harvest something from them, uh, use them for food, all those classic examples. Um, I think a lot of people have like a natural squeamishness around bugs, which can be really fun to play with too, especially when those bugs are giant. And then um, there's also sort of this biological process that bugs kind of go through where a lot of the time in, you know, in, in like an ant hive, for example, you have different ants who are specialized for different things or who are familiar with different things or do different things in the context of the hive. Really playing into those ecosystems can be cool. Uh, for instance, those worker ants that don't fight the players, what are they doing? Well, they're carrying back the other ants to the, to the husk pile where they're being decomposed to grow new food. 
And then that food is going to end up feeding more ants, so on and so forth down the line. Um, now, so, so the idea of like a really alien thing that behaves differently from your standard bipedal group is a good way to keep things a little interesting, especially if that draws on real life. Uh, another technique that I tried out in a con a little while ago is playing with scale. Um, in general, in Dungeon World, we fight things that are roughly the size of our PCs or slightly bigger, sometimes slightly smaller. Uh, we, I had the, the players face a Lovecraftian horror scale thing. Um, I described it. It was in a gigantic warehouse, this convention, um, or a warehouse-sized space. I described it as being too big to, to fit inside the warehouse we were in. And the things that that let me do is instead of them fighting, you know, instead of them stabbing it with their sword and, and, you know, dealing meaningful damage, they stab it with their sword and then they're able to climb up it as it doesn't notice the pinprick. Um, mm. When they try to get to the eye, which they perceive as a weak point, it blinks and they get stuck under the eyelid because the eye is that big. Um, and when one of its many, many, many mouths swallows them up, they're able to walk out another one because that's the scale we're dealing with. That monster is almost a location. Yeah, that's the thing. It's very, and it's also very tied to the location. You know, if they're in a massive cavern in the abyss, and the monster is part of the wall, but it's also swinging around and and you know lashing out with its tentacles, there's a lot of dynamicism you can use there. Plus, using an indescribable monster is a really good way to always have a move on hand if you don't have to worry about what you've already described the monster having. Sure, it's got tentacles. Yeah, it's got eyes it's got mouths it's got uh you know other other monstrous parts it 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 gazes at you and suddenly you're on the moon that's a thing that a lovecraftian horror can do um the the scale that you can work at uh is a great way to kind of vary things up and you can draw on things that are small you know your average your average monster but think about what it would be like if it were if the if the players were as ants compared to it Oh, it could be fun. Um, yeah, that those are, so those are a couple of my like interesting monsters that I keep around. Stuff based on alien things in real life and taking things that are human-sized or player-sized and making them massive uh, give you, you know, some, some room to play with. A little off the beaten track. In the context of Dungeon World, as we wrap up this section, some ways to apply some of the things we've said are um, you can have monsters with no stats, and there, it, it, there's some discussion in the Dungeon World text that you might want to revisit about how to um, how to do that, especially when you're dealing with something of that scale, where defeating this monster is almost the equivalent of like a ritual, where you just do certain things in a certain order. It's not just about like accruing enough damage, um, and it's more thinking about what the monster does and how the PCs might interact with it than how much health it has. Uh, like in in the Dungeon World rulebook, there is some stuff that has no stats. For example, like the the word demon and, and things like that. That these things you can't really just hit them. The sword you have to interact with them in some way. Um, additionally, those bullet points that you see under the monster, they're not just there to like provide you an easy reference for like how this monster behaves. They're not like notes. Those are functional bits of game text that are usually more important than how much health the monster has or what its you know damage it does. Because those are things that trigger on six minus results. Those are brilliant. Like mm -hmm. That that most of monster building is deciding like what cool bits go right there. Because those are the things that make uh, the play to find out stuff happen. Like if there's sixteen health, 
I can plan out ahead of time how many hits it needs to take for this thing to go down. But if the monster has a move like cast a poorly understood spell, mm. that leaves, like, like things do in the Dungeon World rulebook, if you look at them, that leaves the ability for that monster to be different and dynamic every time that you face mm -hmm. it, you know, with something really interesting. If the monster has a move like chomp off a limb, the GM is allowed to trigger that when you are engaged with this thing and roll a six minus. You can straight up lose a limb. So, like, you have to think about uh, if you don't want that to happen to your PC, you have to not get close, you know, and so, like, that creates different stuff like that. Um, I, I, I'm i going to link, uh, there's a, and I'll, I'll give a page reference too, but in uh, a, a little zine supplement that Ray Otis just released for free, which with some additional material he couldn't fit into his zines that he's produced last year, he has a little workshop um, about how to create interesting monsters where he has some really good words about this. And the summary of it is don't put something there that just restates something we already know about the monster from its health and damage die. Like if it, if it says rake with its claws, that's not a great monster move because it already has the move claws, d6 damage, you know? Like it should have something there like burrow and reappear elsewhere. You know, something that would be hard to represent with just its normal attack. Right. Well, these are interesting monsters. Write in with your interesting monsters and your tricks for making them cooler and more memorable. With that in mind, I think it's time for us to move to discuss another part of gameplay. Rather than the moment-to-moment -moment consistent stuff, what do we do when we need to break away from our ordinary game and do something a little different? What happens when we need to present our players with sort of a non-core rules avenue for expression? Uh, there's the concept um, of mini-games, and this is also kind of borrowed from video games, where you do something that is almost a self-contained unit of like rules and mechanics that isn't directly related to the rest of the game. Um, my examples of this are in some fantasy RPGs, like the Witcher series and things like that. You can like play cards with people at inns. Like in the Witcher, you can play Gwent with someone. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is literally just a, a nesting of one game within another. And if we wanted to do that in RPG, we easily could. You can go to the tavern and say, I play chess with this guy, break a chess board, and play chess with your GM. And if you wanted to, like, make it interface with the rules uh, a little bit and not have it just be player skill um, instead of character skill, which is a whole other conversation of, like, are, are the skills being tested at the table, the skills of the player, the skills of the character, you could have, like, a couple pieces removed from the opponent's board if your character had high int or something like that to represent your advantage. Mm -hmm. Um but um, I've also seen this represented in different ways. In, in the 5th edition campaign I just played in, it was common that when two other players were having an argument or when we were on the trail or something, there was these characters that had an ongoing arc of that they would always play chess against each other in this ongoing series. Um, and they would play this version called Dragon's Chess. But they represent that, but just by making opposed intelligence rolls and like best out of three won the match. And, and then they describe the game narratively. Oh, that's like, but fun. they just made a couple of checks. So that's, that's a mini game and they represent it just with a few, a few roles, right? They abstracted it. Totally. Which is easy to do for, uh, for, uh, Dungeon World. And, um, you know, you could roll, uh, 2d6 plus int, you know, a couple times and, and just see that. But I've also seen things that get a little more interesting that are designed to address specific problems. Um, and in Dungeon World, we could represent these with a move. Um, and we often do. For example, downtime. Um, especially make camp is its own sort of mini game. If you wanted, you could come up with a mini game for like cooking. Like if one character was going to actually make a meal for the other PCs, you come up with some sort of dice mechanic for, um, 
with the ingredients they were able to get from that day, give them different modifiers, and then based on the dice roll, they could potentially give everyone else a plus one forward, or have a risk of giving everyone minus one forward if they accidentally food poison them, mm. something like that. Um, but I've seen uh, downtime type activities abstracted into minigames, and here's one that I want to mention. So someone was saying that they wanted a way for PCs to create their own spells um, and have that be have some structure to that where they can research them. And this is a, a blog post that I'll link to as well. But their their way was the PC has to come up with a few words that describe what they want their spell to do. For example, they want a spell that doesn't do a lot of damage, but it like seeks out invisible enemies uh, to sort of flush them out of hiding. And so their, their words might be um, dart seeks hidden enemy. And then they feed that into this crossword generator and they provided like a link for this crossword generator, or you could just do it yourself. And the crossword generator tries to like make the words into boxes of the right amount of letters um, and find letters that are similar between words to be the intersection points and creates a crossword. And then each of those boxes, you can have be either an ingredient or a specific book or a piece of knowledge that PC needs to get to, um, to, to complete the research for the spell. So for example, and they relate to the word, for example, seeks has four boxes. Um, the S E E and the K and the S. And for each of those boxes, it might be a book about, um, finding a book detailing the history of a specific tribe that was famed for their hunting tactics. Um, then they might need two lodestones that attract to each other, like for one of the other boxes, mm -hmm. you know, and et cetera, et cetera. And they can track all these down or you can spice them around the dungeon or they can just spend money to acquire them in town or something. And once they have all of them, then they're allowed to like have this spell. Cool. Because they so this can be layered on top of a ritual or something like that. Mm -hmm. So um, so the game here is about generating the side quest to get, then end up getting the the positive result, the thing that you really want out of the whole thing. That's yeah, but fun. they've all the player also has this this crossword like on their sheets, and so they can see how many boxes they have left, yeah. what they already have, and once they acquire something. They now have it for the future, right? That they might be um, building out a library of mm. wizard, wizardish tomes on seeking. So any other book, any other uh, like spell that they create that uses the word seeks, they now already have the ingredients for. Cool, right? So that's that, that's the mini game part. Yeah, of it. I like it. Well, I want to I want to shift gears a little bit and share a quick story about a mini game that came up independently of our conversation about mini games today. Like it's it's convenient that we're talking about this because. We actually had a little mini game come up organically in my ongoing Blades in the Dark campaign that I'd oh, like nice. to share here because I think you can use it anywhere. My players had just stumbled into somewhat hostile ground. They were at the sixth story of an apartment building and were confronted by a group of dwarves who shouldn't be there, uh, who shouldn't be living there, rather. After a brief fight, the uh, the group of them sort of stopped being violent with one another and came together and one of the players produced a bottle of whiskey from his person. Uh, actually, sorry, from her person. Um, the, the character in question is gender fluid and I misgendered her. I'm sorry about that. Um, anyway, so the character produced a whiskey, a bottle of whiskey from her, uh, from her jacket and said, well, let's party. They then all sat around a table and played Never Have I Ever in character with, these, with this group of four dwarves. Oh, nice. And that ended up being a really cool sequence because, A, it made me think about what these dwarves would ask, whether they would drink or not when a question was asked to them, and 
uh, we had sort of an, an, a meta layer on top of that of one of the players had a move that let them know that, that whenever they were being lied to, which meant that if a dwarf didn't drink when they should have or did drink when they shouldn't have, that player would know. And all of the... Uh, anytime a player wanted to lie and not take a drink, they had to roll in order to get away with it. Um, and that ended up being a really cool sequence because it forced the players to think about their, their backstories and discover things about their backstories based on the questions being asked. And on top of that, it was so different from what we ordinarily see in that game. It's something that I'm going to be trying to... It's a, it was a magical session that I'm going to try to recapture and... Yeah, I'll definitely be thinking about it for a while. It was just such an unexpected oh, yeah. minigame that I could never have prepared for. Especially because that allows you to do um, something that is core to Blades in the Dark uh, and also, I think, super useful for Dungeon World, which is filling in fiction like in, in reverse. Like I was talking about that I want to do effectively for the PvP game that I'm starting up. We, like You have to decide, have these characters, whether we've seen it on screen or, or in, in play or not, ever done this thing that's being asked of them like have they ever um killed someone wrongfully you know or like the, the, whatever questions asked you have to decide uh, has this character done that? and, and uh, additionally for the npcs that that's really cool and i think really revealing um can i ask uh lights in the dark specifically like what what uh what attribute was being rolled for the lying was it like, uh, i typically uh, consort or something typically it was sway because sway, that's the okay. most deception oriented action but we should talk about uh, we should talk about blades in the dark action rolls a little bit more off mic or possibly on mic in a segment entitled "What's Weird About Blades in the Dark's Action Rolls," because <laughs> it it was a real it was a real stretch for me coming out of Dungeon World where the group decides what gets rolled as opposed to Blades where you say what you roll and then you say what you do in fiction to justify that roll. Very different. Yeah, I like it, it is very but it's different. very different. Um, in, in Dungeon World, the, the analog would be, um, it's definitely not the players deciding that, but as the GM, when you're making a new move, you might have to decide what um, gets rolled for this. And occasionally I have seen moves where it says roll plus stat, and it's just based on how the players approach it. For example, defy danger. It's usually pretty cut and dry, like how you're defying danger, but there are some cases where it kind of is up to a table ruling. Mm -hmm. For example, a character is holding their breath for a long time underwater. Is that a con roll? Or a strength roll, you know, uh, yeah. and or I, I, mean, I would say constitution nine times out of ten. But some people try to argue strength for that. Or for example, this character they're running a long distance. Is that constitution yes. or is it strength? Because athleticism. Yeah. So most of the times, like you have to decide, like is this an example of enduring or is this an example of powering through? You know, mm -hmm. which are kind of interchangeable. But um, so yeah, uh, yeah. What other? Oh, there, there was one other um, thing I wanted to say for mini games. Um, social uh, dynamics sometimes. Uh, mini games can be a way to abstract a little bit um, because a lot of times the combat we're doing, we're playing pretend, right? We're rolling dice and stuff. But sometimes the conversations are happening for real um, at the table where you really have to um, know the right thing to say or the right thing to ask to get the right thing piece of information. The way that some tables play RPGs and I've seen interesting mini games sort of layered on top of conversations um, and in I'll, I'll link to this one as well but I saw this thing where the, the players when they're talking to an important NPC they would have um, a little bingo sheet and you can make this a 4x4 grid if you want it to be really small or you can make it 9x9 or however big you wanted 
and each square was like something that they might lead the PC, the NPC to say. For example, like to threaten them, to uh, mention a place they've never heard of, mm. uh, to say the name of a previous NPC they've previously seen. And every time the NPC did that in conversation, they could check off the associated box. And once they got a row of them, they were allowed to ask any one question of the PC and get a truthful answer. And this represented in fiction them observing their mannerisms and guiding them through different conversational points until they could deduce something about them. That's really cool. So I like that yeah, a lot. And or or you could abstract it with a single role, right? Like totally. you might be talking to a PC and they could just make, you know, an insight role to like know if they're lying. That's that sort of thing. Um but it, it moves you a little bit past parlay if you're trying to not tell the PC to do something, but uh learn something about them. You could even trigger spout lore on a PC or on an NPC, uh which is uh, something that we don't often we certainly don't could maybe be considered a mini game all right well this has been meta talk talking about our mini games let us know as always what mini games you've used in your games we'll try to keep an eye out for those coming in on the email Um, now before we get to more emails for today it's time for us to get into a section that i'm very excited about today picture this And I understand that we've got something to picture. So I've been reading Vornheim, like I said, and every time I read anything produced by uh, Lamentations of the Flame Princess uh, and their um, all all of their library of content, it's always a, a, a treasure trove, a picture of this worthy material. And I just want to take one that uh, I thought was particularly delightful from Vornheim. In the section talking about special festivals that Vornheim has, there's this festival where the, all the people in um in the city. Uh, each household takes a goat, uh, freshly kills the goat, and then leaves it in the street outside their houses. Then they open all the gates of the city and allow wolves to roam freely through the city streets. And that day, everyone travels by underground tunnels or by sky bridges, which the city is riddled with, or they just don't go outside that day, because wolves are just freely roaming the city. And this is designed to... Um, you know, do some different fictional things. Like maybe it's to appease a certain god or um, allow the wolves to have uh, free reign um, to in- increase their numbers so that they will be outside the city. But then the next day, any wolves that are still in the streets, they hunt down, kill, and then eat. Um, so yeah, that's a really interesting festival that something that the PCs could actually see um, that they might want to question the significance of. But yeah, just something that's flavorful and adventure rich like the pieces might be trapped outside during this festival and have to fight a couple wolves and the fact that they killed them might be sacrilegious or the pieces might um be a druid could shapeshift into a wolf right to like gain passage into the city during this festival because they are opening the doors and allowing in wolves like things like that what are your thoughts on that art that's very weird i like it a lot but it's so weird i don't know to be honest i don't know how i would use this because all things considered, it is just, it's just weird in a really cool way. Like this is, this is totally outside of anything I've considered for a game of mine before. And I'm to the point where I'm actually struggling to come up with my usual, oh, here's how I would use that. Um, wow. I guess, um, I mean, you already covered the, the druid turning into a wolf. That's immediately, of course, where I go with it because I always have druids in my games. And they always shapeshift into the animals that are roaming freely through the streets, whether it's albino squirrels or um, wolves. Um, 
Yeah, I guess that could also set up, you know, it, it, years and years ago, the, the city, you know, de- hundreds of years ago, the city was founded by a werewolf who who came in uh, and ate ate a goat at the front door of a farmer and then the next day turned back into uh, a man and decided and decided to make it up to the farmer by buying the farm and then the city grew up from there and now it's just to honor that farmer the the wolves are welcomed in to feed on the goats every every year on the anniversary lots okay yeah that you could do something like that with that if you needed to flesh it out and lore a little bit more wow wow okay that's very cool you could it's a way that you can make a place look foreign right they have this really weird festival so mm-hmm. that's highlighting the fact that they're they're um they're foreign like the, the barbarian's homeland, this might be like a custom. It's also something that you can just sort of present in front of the PCs, be like, yeah, this goes on here, and then see what they do with totally. it. Totally. I could see some enterprising PCs using this as like the backdrop for an assassination, mm-hmm. that they like push someone off of a bridge into the streets and hoping that they'll get eaten by wolves and that'll look just like an accident um, because that's yeah. just something that tends to happen during that yeah. festival. People get There's also the version wolves. of it where there are too many wolves and they can't take the city back, so they bring in the PCs to purge it. Although for me, I, I would feed, I like wolves in real life because I'm a dog person, so I might I might use a different animal for that version of it. There could also be you know it's not wolves this year, it's wargs and their orcish riders that have ridden into town and are consuming all the goats. Oh yeah, like a special slap in the face to be invaded on festival. Oh yes. Like all right, cool. So with that in mind, shall we jump to listener emails? I agree. All right. We have no new emails this week as of when I checked. Well, we do have um, one new message, but we're going to get to it next week because oh, we want okay. to finish the question from last week, which we got about halfway through. Yes. So Hobbitmeister asked a very um, in-depth uh, question with several parts since we had chunked that up. Yeah. So this, so this do you want to read? Should we give PCs a pass because they are a certain playbook, even if they are playing against their type? For instance, should a thief PC be able to do things like sneak around unnoticed or be an agile climber without a defy danger roll, even if by the character's description they are overweight and have a low dexterity score of 9? Are there any ways that you have played against the niche stereotypes in your games? Maybe made a suboptimal character for roleplay purposes? If so, I'd love to hear about it. So, let's let's tackle the first one of this, which is how often how should moves trigger based on fictional positioning when the fictional positioning and the actual and like the character archetype are divergent now in the example that hobbitmeister provides here the idea of a an an overweight thief pc uh attempting to climb agilely without a defy danger roll i would say i would say defy danger would trigger there i wouldn't always make a thief roll defy danger but in this case i think because of the fictional positioning it would trigger right yeah i'd agree um the, the core principle here for me is uh, the flag posting of the player. The player's choice of what their stats are, because they get to assign them yeah. in Dungeon World, as a, which is distinct from other systems, and their choice of what playbook they play are ways of them showing, this is what I think is interesting, and this mm-hmm. is the type of things that I want to see matter in the game. So if a player is like, I have, this is my dump stat, it's interesting to see that cause them problems in the game. Certainly. So... Um, Making them roll defy danger, maybe things that they otherwise wouldn't need to because they're that's low, um, would is really interesting. Or or just pushing for moves that involve their dump stat in general. So for example, maybe you're talking to um, a guard, right? And the guard is um, it, it's not a big like deal conversation, um, but you accidentally insult them, 
and other characters would be able to easily like be like I brush it off. But maybe for your PC because you have a really low charisma score, the GM's gonna say, um, "I'm you're, you're bumbling this so bad that I want to see a defy danger charisma to keep this conversation civil. Otherwise, the guard's gonna like detain you just because he can't." Totally. You know that's interesting. You know. Yeah. If the PC had a high dexterity in the case of this thief, and they were the thief, mm-hmm. I would like to throw them a couple bones, you know, for being the thief. Right. And that's the type of thing that I've seen uh, when I watch other people play Dungeon World sometimes, mm-hmm. and um, particularly in, like, supplements. It says, you ask pointed questions to people based on their class to highlight their the fact that they're that class, right? That the wizard, um, you say, like, oh, you're the wizard. Have you heard of this magic thing before? Right. The only reason you're asking them that is because it says a wizard mm-hmm. on their sheet, right? Yeah. Now, I also want to break down this question even further, which they the question is, the character description is is that the character is overweight. But also the stat is that they have a low dexterity score. But I can also picture a thief who has a high dexterity score but is still an overweight character. Speaking as an overweight yeah. person myself, I can still climb things because I have the technique down even without uh, necessarily having, even if the physical strength doesn't always hold up. So you can still have, even if a character, if a character is fictionally someone who would be able to accomplish something, even if, for instance, there's a physical barrier that like that would imply that they're not capable of it, if they're a thief, they still have the technique for it, I would say. So I, I think the way that the question asker here frames this in terms of stats and description both need to weigh into it in order to decide whether or not a move triggers. Anyway, let's jump ahead a little bit and talk a little bit about the second question here, which is, how have we played against the niche stereotypes in our games? For instance, made a suboptimal character for roleplay purposes. So, I think this is really interesting, uh, especially in Dungeon World, because you get to assign assign those stats, uh, and a lot of the fun is interpreting what those stats mean, right? Like, what does it mean to have, you know, a 16 in intelligence, like, what what is how does that make your character like talk differently than other PCs or especially the the ones that are interesting to me are uh, is charisma like a high charisma and a low charisma could mean so di- so so many different things it might mean that a character is especially suave right a low charisma might mean that even though they like speak eloquently they just smell awful right so like it just puts people off you know that's a way of personifying that low um, charisma and especially um, for me this this question is hitting at if you make your um, your character have a low stats that would traditionally be important for that class. In Dungeon World, each of the classes um, has certain stats that are built into the playbook because those moves uh, that are their starting moves need those stats or will always make you roll them. Mm-hmm. For example, a wizard with low int, uh, I would personally consider pretty fun to play because it allows you to show someone who they're really eager and they really want to be good at magic, but they're just not for some reason like maybe they're lazy and so they they um they try to like cut corners by um like writing on their hand the last couple syllables of spells and stuff like that but it it always gets smudged and so their spells are often misfire right yeah. and that'll represent mechanically by the fact that they have a low int and so whenever they try to cast a spell um the chances of them get like messing it up are just higher totally right i've also played characters where even though the stats are uh, are are consistent with the niche especially a fighter, I've still fictionally positioned them to be weaker or older, less like less dexterous is one of the big ways, not in the sense of the dexterity is low, but in the sense of brittle bones and old joints conflicting with the character's need to duck and cover out of the way. It gives you an opportunity to just have a character moment of, oh, 
Jeez, my elbow is killing me, and it has been for weeks. Even though it doesn't really impact the game, it's it can put it's a good way to put up a flag or have a flag ready for this is a character who needs to rest. Well, let's give them an opportunity to rest and let that be a hook for something. Yeah, and I don't think we've talked about um, flags as the gameplay mechanic right. specifically on this show. But if you were playing with those, and you can um, uh, you can read about those elsewhere. But if you were playing with flags, that would be a great one to write. Yeah. Right? Like ask my character about their creaking joints or uh, give me trouble because I'm slower than an average person. You know, for sure. Cool. Well, I think that it's uh it's important to recognize that not just the GM's job to like make fun moments happen on screen mm-hmm. to push interesting roleplay moments but as a player the things that you put into your character can really improve the game for everyone else because we enjoy seeing characters that are played well and in dungeon world specifically sometimes there's the risk of characters becoming a little samey just because mechanically they start out looking the same because the playbooks um they they give you the same moves mm-hmm. uh you you mainly have the choice of what your stats are and what your equipment is and the equipment choices um, are rarely super, super meaningful other than flavor towards the beginning of the game. And the stat choices, a lot, a lot of times people just do the same ones, right? Yeah. Like all fighters, they always put their, their strength and their know, 16. Their, their strength is their high one, you know, and, and their intelligence is their low one and stuff like that. So just making a drastic choice, like being like, yo, I'm a fighter and I have eight mm-hmm. for my strength. And I'm like, not even picking mean? the dex, the dex weapon version of it. I'm not making precise yeah, like, my tags. Maybe my fighter charisma. That's their really high yeah. stat for some reason. You know, and just role-playing what that means, you can have a really memorable character mm-hmm. that will improve the games you play in sometimes. Sure. It's just a way yeah. to do it. And then, of course, that's also why I'm playing uh, Everett Diaz-Dawson in this upcoming game, a paladin who's also sort of an absentee father. The absentee father thing probably won't come up, come up that much, except that it's, you know, it's a flag I'm putting up. I'm saying, hey, ask me about my kids that I never see. That'll be cool. Yeah. Maybe it won't be cool. We'll both find to out. The other players, both the other players and to the GM. That yeah. like the a, 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 a good Dungeon World player will pick up on story moments and a good GM will push them. Totally. Well, with that in mind, I think we're all set for this episode of Play to Find Out. Once again, I have been Arthur, Art Projects on the Discord. And I have been Eamon, Void Light on the Discord. Thank you very much for listening. Feel free to send us an email at playtofindout at protonmail.com or find us on Twitter at play, numeral two, find out. We're looking forward to hearing from you, hearing your questions, your comments, your feedback, and we will catch you next week.